0: Please note, this episode contains references to drug addiction, which may be upsetting to some listeners. Discretion is advised. What can you do with your love of science? Well, tell you.
1: everyone and welcome back to the show for our love of science. My name is Fatu and I'm Shakira and we're both here for our love of science. Exactly, for our love of science and our guest star today ta-da, is Dr. <laughs> Ken Shotskis um, and he has agreed to come and share his love of science with all of us. So Ken, welcome. Uh, we're really happy to have you on with us today.
2: It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Um so just to get us kind of like started with the conversation, um, for those of you who have been listening to us for a while, you know that Shakira and I we love to talk (laughs) about food. Let's talk about food. Who's a happy baker? So good. It's so good. I'm like salivating one right now. Oh my gosh, it sounds delicious. I want that now. (laughs) So since it's Sunday morning, um, I told Shakira we can do kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure. So let's talk about either what we had for breakfast, for lunch, for brunch, or if we have to, it can be last night's dinner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> last night's dinner was good
1: for me. <laughs> do the reach, do the reach. So Ken, do you want to get us started?
2: Sure. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm a big bacon, egg, and cheese guy, guys.
1: Oh, I went
2: to my bodega, got myself a BC and uh, an iced coffee. I mean, is there any other way to do it in New York? <laughs>
1: i I like the i like the iced coffee part of that i think that's my favorite part of that meal (laughs) i'm a big like i mean thankfully we're not in the office because my iced coffee game when we're at work and the starbucks is like around the corner it is just like i think an unhealthy level (laughs) iced coffee
2: consumption i've saved a lot of money over the last uh, year and a half right (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of my iced coffee at home. So, so that's, that's been saving me a lot and probably also reducing yeah. the caffeine intake, which is, which is also probably helping.
0: <laughs> what about you, um, Shakira? What did you have? Are we talking about breakfast? Cause you know, I didn't have breakfast. <laughs> I was asleep. Um, how we, we can do dinner. I had dinner last night. <laughs> so, <laughs> What'd you have for dinner? So um, I had a long hike yesterday, as you know, so. Um, when we got home we decided to treat myself. So I got baby back ribs oh. with let me see with yeah. what? Mashed potatoes and some veggies and and the cornbread. Okay. Nice. And yeah, and it was delicious and it just hit the spots. Exactly what I needed. Just a huge hit of protein after that. <laughs> that way to excellent. heaven hike that I did, which was amazing.
1: Excellent. Shakira yeah. loves hiking. <laughs> <laughs> As you will hear. <laughs>
0: I had – so
1: I did have breakfast this morning, um, and I just did something super simple. Um I just had some fried eggs and literally just put it on, like, a tortilla with some cheese and just had that. So, so that was my kind of, like, simple Sunday morning breakfast. I usually like to do – Simple. Yeah. yeah, like an egg-type dish on the weekend just because I have more time for it, you know? So it'll either be, like, a scramble or, like, a fried egg or, or something like that. So
2: that nice. was my
1: – Yeah, my nice (laughs) Sunday morning. Yummy. So with that, let's um, jump in. So Ken, um, he received his bachelor's degree from McGill and his PhD from Rutgers, which is where we we first became acquainted. And currently he works at a program (laughs) officer at the Foundation for Opioid Response Efforts. But before that, Ken has a super amazing, impressive list of accomplishments. So Ken, you were a science policy advisor in the office of the uh, New Jersey governor. And then uh, before joining Four, which is the Foundation for Opioid Response Efforts, you also served as an associate program officer at the Helmsley Charitable Trust. And before yeah. that as well, you also have some amazing activities that you're doing with the New York Academy of Sciences and the Junior Academy, as well as as a scientist in residence. So I feel like you have done like my bucket list of <laughs> what you wanted to accomplish. You've just done it all.
2: I just I just felt grad school wasn't busy enough, so I needed to do something on the side.
1: <laughs> clearly, clearly. So can you tell us more about what you do now and what you love about it? So I guess we can just get started with what is the foundation for op- opioid response efforts and uh, what is the mission of this organization and what do you do as part of that?
2: Sure. Uh, yeah, so FOUR is a national grant-making organization. Hmm. Uh, we're a 501c3 a you know, private foundation uh, that is focused on the the opioid crisis, um, you know, really, you know, occurring in the U.S., but, you know, really in many countries around the world um, right now. Um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, big news was, the big news of last week was CDC put out a, you know, the, the latest numbers in terms of the number of uh, drug overdose deaths in the last mm-hmm. year, uh, where, the, sadly, 93,000 people, um, which is the largest number of, of people ever to oh, um, fatally overdose oh, in wow. the country, um, in the history of the country. Um, and obviously, you know, the COVID pandemic has exacerbated that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the the work that we do is, you know, more important than ever. It's, yeah. you know, we're we a grant-making organization that funds projects around the country on um, a variety of different things, all the way from, you know, prevention, all the way for, to treatment, to mm-hmm. recovery. Hmm. Um, And, you will just hope that we're able to make a difference and an impact on the crisis.
3: Excellent.
1: Excellent. And then, uh, so what do you do exactly in your role as a um, program
3: officer? Yeah,
2: Yeah, so um, I was, uh, I guess I was hired as the the, the first senior program officer of of the foundation. Um, And, uh, you know, with our president, Karen Scott, we were tasked with building out, you know, a brand new foundation, a brand new program that was going to be focused on. These uh, solutions. So, mm-hmm. um, really, it's been an amazing experience. You know, when you know when I worked at the Helmsley Charitable Trust, you know, I, I came into uh, a program that was you know already built. It mm-hmm. was there. You know, they had sort of a strategy in place. They had um, you know many years of funding and projects. Mm-hmm. You know, that I, I helped take over and 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 help uh, and helped manage. Um, in, in this case, and one, was one of really the, one of the attractive things about joining. Mm-hmm. Or was that. We were building something brand new from the ground mm-hmm. up, um, so really had it was able to to have a lot of input in the direction of the foundation mm-hmm. where we thought you know funding and resources needed to go to in order to really make a, a deep enough impact. So um, you know it's been a lot. It's been a lot of work. Let's put <laughs> it that way. You know, the last two years of of trying to you know get something that's. Um, impacting people um it took program development we convened partners it took uh building relationships with you know with as many people across the country as possible we were new players to the to the game and you know we don't want to do things in a silo we want to introduce ourselves we want to work with people so it's a lot of relationship building Mm -hmm. as well Uh, and happy to say you know as of today we have you know now in just Two years of of really working there, 43 grantees Mm -hmm. and have been able to um, uh, give out grants worth $13 million now um, on a variety of different projects across the country. So, um, you know, I I think when I talked to Karen about it, um, our, our president, you know, I don't think either of us envisioned us growing this quickly and having an impact this fast. Um you know when we both joined. So it's it's been great. Right.
1: Excellent. Wow. And what yeah. sorry when exactly did you say that for um started?
2: So it officially started in 2018 mm-hmm. um but program work uh, I was hired and, and program work really didn't start till The um, January 2019.
1: Okay, wow. Yeah. So literally like brand new. That's amazing. That's really impressive. And it takes something, I think, to want to be there when you're when organizations are getting their foot off the ground, right? And like really (laughs) being involved in those initial processes and and really Uh, trying to establish you know what is it that this organization is going to be and what is it that our work is going to do within the larger um, country society whatever I think that's really impressive in and of itself not I don't think everyone can do that you know it's definitely it can be a big risk you know (laughs) I
2: I find fun I find fun being able to to build things that can really have a tangible difference in people's lives you know And, and and having you know the ability to have input from the very beginning, Yeah, I mean, it, that's that's really what I enjoy. I think sometimes when you come into a, a place and you're picking something up, um, it can be frustrating, right. you know, things are, people tell you, th- this is the way things have always been done, right. yes. you know, and, and instead, <laughs> being able to build something um, from scratch where there is no right way to do it from the beginning, right. yeah. I think... <laughs> opens up so many possibilities.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And how has your grant making evolved over time um, from when four first started to now?
2: So, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I, I take grant making obviously very seriously mm-hmm. in, in the way that I, I kind of evaluate, you know, where are those opportunities to really make a difference? Um, you know, I, I think with four you know, as I said, you know, I, I think it was really important to to make sure that the community, the field, they, they, they knew us, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the very beginning, we did not want to be just another foundation that comes in with dollars and says, this is the way that things are going to mm-hmm.
3: be done. We want to
2: hear input from people, we want to, uh, you know, know really what the biggest problems are on the ground that people are facing every day.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, from the very beginning, before, you know, from our first RFP, that was our goal. Right. Um, we had a very broad request for proposals at the beginning that was focused on increasing access to treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was purposely broad because we wanted to hear from everybody.
3: Hmm. It's like,
2: send in your applications, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we knew that it was going to be really difficult, you know, it, it, with, a, with a small staff at the very beginning of a foundation. We, we knew that it was going to be a, a heavy load, and, and it was. We received nearly 500 applications. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, and I can tell you basically from you know that September in 2019, me and Karen, we just read every single one of those LOIs. Oh, no. oh, my The gosh. entire month, I remember sitting in, in McCarran Park here in, uh, in Brooklyn, um, and it was just hanging out with my dog with a stack of applications no. just <laughs> eating away in the park. Just trying to find different environments to, you know, keep my mind fresh.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, but it was it was incredible. Uh, really getting to know what are the needs around the country, right. what are the organizations that are at the front lines and, and working on this.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so from that, you know, we were through that process. You know, obviously going through a, a full proposal process and all the way up to grant recommendations to our board. Um, we were able to give out nineteen grants out of that one. And funny how things kind of work out. Mm-hmm. Um, at the literally the day that we announced those grants was the day before we all had to start working from home because of COVID. Wow. Oh gosh. So our grant making changed considerably. <laughs> 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 um, it shifted to, you know, a lot of COVID response, just like everybody else. Yeah. Um, you know, we were still building processes, you know, at the foundation. Right. And uh, I think the situation required us to adjust those processes slightly to be more responsive and more real time, you know? So it's, we were able to give out some, you know, quick COVID response grants, Mm -hmm. uh, really get that money out to to places and people that are working on the front lines of helping people with substance use disorder, Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh,
2: during COVID when they can't meet up with their physicians, they can't meet up with their support groups. So things changed there. And, you know, and and, and now we're moving into prevention. So, you know, we're moving Mm -hmm. into prevention, we're moving into innovation, we're moving into all of these different areas Mm -hmm. um, as well. Um, But I think, you know, in terms of, you know, how grant making evolved, I think right now, it's interesting, because we're at the mercy of the pandemic, in in a sense, and and how we operate as a foundation.
3: Yeah.
1: So, yeah. Wow. And, you know, I feel like that's, such an incredible story because it really speaks to the need that we see for innovative solutions for Um, responding to the opioid epidemic. You know, if with just within the first year, you're getting that many applications from across the country, you know, I think that really speaks to the impact this is having in communities all over the country, you know? Um, And if you looked even more broadly, right, I mean, you would even see the impact uh, outside of that. So that's really just almost like mind blowing. It it really, really is.
2: Well, yeah, I I try to I explain to people that I, I, it's it's really gratifying to work at this intersection. I work on my my background. Like my, my PhD is mm-hmm. is in infectious diseases, mm-hmm. you know? so um, you know I'm I was not an opioid expert. You know, a few years ago, right? Um, you know, I had to learn all of that, and, yeah. and 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 really, what I've learned is that you know. I'm lucky in the ability to be able to be flexible and jump into different fields, into mm-hmm. different biomedical public health issues. Um, but the opioid crisis, I think is, is unique, uh, at this moment. I know a lot of attention is on the COVID, right, pandemic, right. Mm-hmm. but the, the opioid crisis is at the intersection of so many different, uh, public health and societal issues mm-hmm. right now that all of those are affecting it. And it makes it really, really complex. To be able to find solutions for this, Mm because it's it's not going to be a one size fits all solution. It's not going to be able to be you know you make a vaccine and you solve the problem. Yeah, here you're dealing with issues you know from a public health standpoint, from Mm -hmm. a medical standpoint, from you know an incarceration standpoint, civil rights standpoint. So Mm -hmm. you're really working across you know so many different issues that need to be solved. It's you know i i feel humble mm-hmm. to be able to be you know in in this situation and work across all of this so yeah. I, I think it is a unique thing that people really need to be more focused on mm-hmm. um you know in in order for us to really start to make a difference we're going to mm-hmm. need a lot of different people in a lot of different areas to really yeah. solve this it's not just going to be the public health people right right,
0: right. definitely definitely so Since the COVID pandemic started, I, you know, I feel like I haven't heard a lot about the opioid crisis like on the news. Right. And, you know, it makes sense. Right. Because the pandemic is sort of the COVID pandemic is sort of taking over sort of all of our lives and everything we do. We have to change everything. But it sounds like the face of the opioid pandemic, the opioid crisis has not improved. Right. It's it's almost it sounds like it's gotten even worse. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you know about what it looks like right now?
2: Yeah. So, you know, the, the opioid crisis, you know, I I guess the, the current iteration of the opioid crisis, mm-hmm. you can argue that it, it may go all the way back, you know, to the, the crack epidemic, mm-hmm. you know, like it's it, so, and, and, you know, obviously, you know, the, the way that the country responded to that um, was with the war on drugs, which we know has honestly made things much, much worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I think right now, the, Right now, the COVID pandemic has really exacerbated the problem. You already had you know, record high numbers before the pandemic mm-hmm. happening. There was a slight dip in the number of, of fatal overdoses mm-hmm. a few years back towards the end of the, the Trump administration.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, however, we've, we saw before the pandemic that there started to be that increase again. In, in drug overdoses and, and, and fatal overdoses. And, and that is really because we're in this third phase of this crisis, which mm-hmm. is really being driven by um, illicitly manufactured uh, fentanyl.
3: Uh, mm-hmm. right.
2: So what's happening right now is fentanyl is becoming more pervasive in the drug supply in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, again, was happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic has obviously exacerbated right. mm-hmm. it. when when the drug supply changes because borders close, wow. uh, people that may have been using drugs beforehand, they lose their tolerance mm-hmm. and then as things open up again, they're able to, you know, be able to to, to to get the drugs that they have on the street. But however, now you have fentanyl in it, mm-hmm. so which is you know, multitudes more
0: dangerous yeah. so so yeah. it's
2: it's 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 kind of a perfect storm right now and and, and on top of that we have a mental health, health crisis yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah yeah which you know
2: we know that 40 percent of people that have an opioid use disorder also have a a, a concurrent mental health condition yeah. like depression mm-hmm. uh, like anxiety mm-hmm. um, so i think this is only going to be Uh, unfortunately i think you know uh, unless we really have some real policy solutions and we have we we put the supports in place to be able to help people Mm -hmm. um you know there's there's a potential that this can get you know much much worse before Mm -hmm. it
3: gets better wow wow my gosh Yeah. yeah
1: um and so when you are looking at, um, sort of like grantees, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for these different, um, LOIs that, um, or grant cycles that you guys have, what exactly are you, are you looking for? So how do you select, I guess, you know, whether it be, um, a research group or, you know, like a hospital or an outreach group, you know, how do you kind of select who gets a grant?
2: Yeah. Well, we fund across, you know, all of those different types of organizations, mm-hmm. and that's important to us. From the very beginning, it was really important for us that we were not going to be only funding
3: mm-hmm. the
2: usual suspects,
3: mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Harvards, the mm-hmm. Yales, mm-hmm. The,
2: the Penns, you know, the, you know, all of those ones that you think that when you hear from a foundation mm-hmm. or getting, you know, getting funds from, you know, those are the usual suspects. You know, for us, it was really important that we were going to make an impactful, uh, you know, effect on the crisis. We we needed to fund small local organizations mm-hmm. just as much as those bigger ones,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: because it usually is the small local grassroots organizations on the ground that are directly helping
3: people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so I, I I can tell you that many of our of our applications that we receive are are really asking for for simple things such mm-hmm. as housing support, mm-hmm. such as. Such as uh, the ability to afford buprenorphine, the the medication Mm -hmm. for opioid disorder.
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: Things that you could really see the government maybe one day funding, so that we have a more robust healthcare system. That those types of social services, like housing, like Mm -hmm. food insecurity, like transportation, like all these things that people need on top of just the medications, mm-hmm. you know, in order to get into recovery.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's, you know, for us, it's a, not only funding the research around what is innovative, what's coming out of it. Mm-hmm. It's not only just funding the hospital systems and the health systems to be able to, to treat people right now. It's also investing in communities on the ground, you know, to be able to set up prevention programs, mm-hmm. to be able to set up treatment programs, peer recovery programs, mm-hmm. and, and get out in their communities to help directly, Uh, those people that they love. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, you know, when I think about, so um, I work in philanthropy as well, which I don't, I don't know if we covered that maybe in our, in our first episode or
3: something. (laughs) But but
1: one of the the things that I find really unique um, within that space is how we can kind of work out of the box, right. To find these different like solutions for larger scale, you know, public health crises, um, whatever they may be. Um, So is that something that you can, you know, speak a little bit more to, you know, like how, what is it, I guess, about um, being in this field that sort of allows you to kind of tackle these problems in a unique way.
2: So, so, I love working in the philanthropic space. Mm-hmm. Um, having worked in, in government and philanthropy, and in nonprofits mm-hmm. and in academia, you know, all really a kind of across. The only thing I guess I haven't really worked in full time is industry.
1: <laughs> There's still time. Um,
2: <laughs> but but the philanthropy, I think, I think has such a, a major role to fill. In uh, I guess it's almost like the the funding sphere,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and and I think what philanthropy has the ability to do is is really shepherd along, shepherd along, and and, and invest in very promising solutions at an early stage mm-hmm. that other people would not be willing to mm-hmm. do so.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and I think about this as you know, uh, think about. Expenditure responsibility grants, program-related investment grants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's many times that you know a company or a researcher or somebody <laughs> has a great idea that wants to get it out, that has the ability to to really impact patients. However, they're missing that one piece of data, mm-hmm. that one piece of data, or that one you know thing that would really, really convince a venture capitalist uh, or convince. Uh, or have the data to be able to go get an R O one, or or to get a you know a small business grant or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, that's where I think philanthropy philanthropy can essentially bring things back from the valley of death.
3: Hmm. You know, it's
2: there's that drop that's off deep. point. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is. That's that's, that's, where most, that's where most great ideas go to die, is that valley of death in funding, mm-hmm. where, it, that, where they, it drops off, no one's willing to fund them because mm-hmm. it's too risky. Mm-hmm. Philanthropy, I think, can really help de-risk those, mm-hmm. uh, those ideas, um, take more risks, mm-hmm. and invest in those ideas that are outside the box get the data that is necessary mm-hmm. um, to prove that it either works or it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. We always talk about like what philanthropy, it's just as important to just find out what doesn't work yeah. so you're not spending any more money as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So, and- so uh, <coughs> that's where philanthropy has the greatest impact in my yeah. opinion is yeah. get, get the data and allow them to then have a VC pick it up or yeah. the government pick up a larger charge. Yeah, yeah.
0: I love that what you just said, figure out what doesn't work as well. Right. Cause I've, I felt just, you know, being in the research space, like in grad school and postdocing, that a lot of the time is like you write these grants and it's like, okay, you have to prove that your ideas mm-hmm. were true. <laughs> right. Yes. And so sometimes you have PIs who like, you have your students doing all the work ahead of time and you know that this works. Right. And then you write the grant because you already know. So it's like, it's so much pressure to sort of not. You know, discover but prove that what you proposed is true. And mm-hmm.
2: yeah, so it's just it's- one of my most proud publications in grad school uh-huh. was a paper that was literally on negative.
3: <laughs> oh my and, God.
2: And, and, it got, and it got accepted and it was actually put in a special edition of the journal that was focused on negative. Nice. What? <laughs> that is nice. one of the, honestly one of the most proud papers I have because. I think that people forget that it's that you, you learn something from that. Yeah. Yeah yeah just, you don't need to do it again
3: yeah yeah it's right? important right?
0: it's important but we don't yeah. do that we don't do that we, right? don't.
1: we don't yeah and i feel like imagine how much time money and effort is wasted just like repeating these right fail things that don't work that that's one of the yeah. things that always stuck with me through grad school i'd be you know like struggling through this experiment and my p and I, my pi and i we'd always joke like oh someone probably figured out <laughs> two years ago that it doesn't work Ha ha, ha but you're right. still sitting there struggling for like six you, you months, just, right? Exactly. Yeah. You just
2: spent six months of your life when someone could have wrote the paper oh, yeah. on it and yeah. you could have been doing something uh,
1: else. Yep. Yeah. It's rough. It's, like, it's rough. It's rough. <laughs> it's rough. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what kind of feedback has Four received um, since you guys are, you know, like the new kids on the block, I guess? <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. I mean,
2: I, I, I think we've received some amazing feedback. Excellent. You know, I, I think we've picked amazingly well our grantees Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we we were we wanted to make sure that our grantees were going to be able to build these relationships Mm -hmm. um and and we wanted to make sure that our grantees were going to be like you know our best spokespeople
3: Mm. you know that
2: that they see from the inside the work Mm -hmm. that we do they Mm -hmm. see how we interact with them uh you know they 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 see what we are trying to do Mm -hmm. and they're going to be our best advocates Yeah. So you know the feedback that we're getting from our I think I had one grantee a couple months back. You know on a on all these Zoom calls now. Yeah. uh, You know she said basically it's like you're my you're my favorite funder. She's like I'm telling everyone telling everyone to apply for four grants and I'm just like slow down
3: a little bit. Five hundred the first time
2: and and it's like. But yeah, you know, I, I I think that's that was just so important to us was that's to build those relationships. Great. Yeah, uh, and it's important to me as an officer to be able to build those relationships. Yeah. I, I know there's from I know I've been on the grantee side. Mm, yeah. I know that there's I know that there's a power dynamic yes. here, and, and and when it comes to it, yeah. And you know, I I it's important I think in philanthropy for officers to officers to to recognize that power dynamic and and really approach it more as a partnership. This mm-hmm. is a partnership you know, we're giving, you know, this amount of funds, you know, to allow the the grantee to get this done. We both had the same common goal, which Mm -hmm. is to help patients. So Mm -hmm. let's work together to get to that goal. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you follow your grantees long term? Um, Is there
2: like a plan for that? So, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we've only had two, Two grants, I think, mm-hmm. end at this point. Okay, um, but you know, I, I consider all of our grantees that are you know, part of the four family at mm-hmm. this point. We are. I, I fully expect that I'm going to be, you know, they're going to be a part of our network for mm-hmm. for the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they are the experts. We want to be able to reach out to them to get the most accurate information on you know any issues that you know come up in the future. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I, I view this as this is these are long term relationships. Yeah. You know, there may be another, there may be another opportunity where uh, another project comes along where they're the appropriate people and we'd want to fund them again. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, we we see the value in being able to continue these relationships and and build on previous projects.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, work together in a very you know advocacy related way to, to you know to push things forward. Right. Yeah. So yeah, no, we it, we we plan to. We're planning a very big family, let's put
3: it <laughs> I like that.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. And so you spoke um, just a little bit about sort of some of the challenges that you faced, mainly, you know, right now with the coronavirus, pan- coronavirus pandemic. Um, have there been a- other challenges that um, you faced?
2: You know, I think it's, I think everybody, you know, that had to work from home, it, it's <laughs> I think everyone's feeling that burnout. You
3: know? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's,
2: I think on the operation side, not just the, the program side of what we do, I think yeah. we always have to think about staff. Um, mm. I've been reading a lot of articles actually about, you know, nonprofits and, and the way that they're trying to to help staff kind of get through this burnout, mm-hmm. you know, through the year. Um, and I, I think, you know, really taking time for, you know, mental health and, and, and taking care of yourself. That's the only way I... I Felt halfway through the pandemic people when we got to like September or October or something mm-hmm. felt completely like I need I, I didn't stop working for months yeah you know, it just was not a it was not a thing yeah you just you just kept working yeah, yeah. Um, until one day it just kind of hits you like a you know ton of bricks so yeah. um just you know I, I think that was probably the biggest challenge is, mm-hmm. is making sure that the, not only myself but you know other staff you know making sure that my team feels good, um, and yeah, you know, making sure that everyone is is healthy and
3: definitely you know, can
2: and is up to be able to do the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah, definitely, definitely. Cool, Shakira. Do
0: you have any additional
1: questions? Yeah,
0: I do. I wrote a couple of things. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I I think you talked about there are only two. You said there are only two grants that have you know ended. Um, and so they're all ongoing, but I'm guessing it's not like research, right? So it's not like secrets. So is there any are there any that sort of stand out to you or is there any that you can tell us about?
2: Yeah. No, okay, I great. Mean, I, I, I love talking about my grantees. Great. Um okay. you know, so I mean we, we we have we're having impact, you know, all over the country and in, in, in different areas, you know. Mm-hmm. One of my one of my favorite grants is this project we have with uh, Marity Shogren at the College of Nursing at the University of North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, what Marity is doing over there is, uh, you know, really helping uh, with pregnant and postpartum women with opioid mm. use disorder yeah. uh, and, and, and helping you know, women's, you know, WIC offices, women, mm-hmm. uh, infants and children's offices, mm. these government funded offices to be able to provide education uh, food security and all that,
3: mm-hmm. um,
2: she's helping provide education to WIC offices mm-hmm. in uh, in North Dakota and several of the states around, uh, around North Dakota have actually oh, wow. reached out to, to be able to provide that education as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, she's extended this even more to, uh, you know, not just you know, not just the, the areas you think, but also to indigenous mm. and tribal communities, mm. really working with tribes out in North Dakota to, to help uh, integrate it into their community clinics, mm-hmm. into getting education and helping women in, in those communities. Um, and you know, we received a, a letter from Marity just a, <gasps> a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. an email from her, uh, from that was you know, that was from a WIC officer or, or, or you know, someone that worked the WIC office. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, the, the WIC staff member was just so grateful
3: for the education
2: because there was a mother that came in who had opioid use disorder and this WIC staff member uh, was just expressing. It's like, you know, I I felt like I had the education and training to be able to be compassionate and and, and really meet this person's needs. So when you, when you see that, those anecdotal, like, you know, stories, you know, that's what makes you feel good. And that's what makes you feel like, I gotta keep kind of keep doing this. I mean, that, that's one example Um another example that I can give you, um, you know, so there's this organ there's this health system, Ballot Health, um, that's in uh in Tennessee and Virginia. Mm -hmm. And you know, when the pandemic hit, uh those this is very rural Virginia and Tennessee, and they, Mm -hmm. you know, don't have necessarily, you know, physicians in every, you know, spot like we have here, like Mm -hmm. in New York and New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Uh and when the pandemic hit, there was a lot of concern over our people that have substance use issues or uh, are already in treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, Are they going to be able to connect with the care that they need? Mm. Uh, Everyone was trying to get telehealth services up and running. You know, it was a whole um, like overnight, the entire uh, health system changed (laughs) in terms of reimbursement. So Ballot Health, their project, um, they set up a peer help warm line where it's staffed Mm. by, uh, volunteer peer recovery coaches, people that also have lived experience mm-hmm. uh, with with substance use uh, and they they are able to answer calls. It's a you know twenty four seven line that people mm-hmm. are able to call in and just be able to talk to somebody about these issues and maybe be connected to care mm-hmm. um, in ballot health system or to a community provider. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love about that one also is that those volunteers on there, they are actually. Uh, also working towards certification to become um, certified peer specialist, where then they can actually get a job Mm -hmm. and employment um, as one of these specialists uh, Mm -hmm. and and start to rebuild in recovery. So that's amazing. It's, it's, it's finding those, you know, those opportunities to be able to help not just the patient, but also the people that are, that are helping the patient, you know, I, I love being able to kind of have those types of holistic projects. So I mean, you know, those are two of you know two of my favorite. I mean, I love, I love all them. <laughs> I, may be,
1: I may be biased. Um, it's like children, right? I love
3: them all.
2: <laughs> I mean, no, it, it really is. I, 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 may, I may be very biased. And, you know, we have one with Massachusetts General Hospital with Alistair Martin and Shuhan He, mm-hmm. um, emergency emergency doctors um, that uh, are running the Get Waivered program. Mm. What they're trying to do is get. Uh, as many uh, emergency department physicians as possible wavered mm-hmm. to prescribe buprenorphine, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. the, the medication that you can use for opioid. One of the three approved mm-hmm. uh, medications for opioid use disorder, which um, again because of stigma, right, uh, right, right, requires an extra waiver in order to prescribe, where you, no other medication has this issue. Wow. Um, but what their goal is, is to get, you know, nearly eight, 8,000, 9,000 f- physicians waiver to prescribe when the pandemic hit, they
3: mm-hmm.
2: had to obviously to switch their strategy
3: mm-hmm. and
2: they've been able to, they've been able to waiver so many, so many physicians. So hopefully that's helping to lead wow. to, to more access to treatment as well around the country. Yeah.
3: Um, mm-hmm. But
2: if, if, every, if anybody wants to check out our grants, I would, uh, you know, I encourage them to go to our website at 4fdn.org. There you go. go. The grantees, the grantees page, and you can read all about our grants.
3: Yes, awesome. <laughs> perfect, perfect.
0: <laughs> so, um, I'm happy that you just mentioned buprenorphine and the stigma around that because that's exactly what I wrote when you first mentioned buprenorphine stigma and controversy. Because I remember from years ago. Um, just hearing about medically assisted treatment and all the controversy around using it and how if you're on this treatment, you're not really clean. And, you know, there's scientific evidence, right, that being on, you know, buprenorphine methadone, these, these things, they help people to stay clean mm-hmm. and reclaim their lives, right? There's scientific evidence that it really does help. Mm-hmm. And so, but there's all this controversy of, of, you know, not using it. And it seems like doctors are still having a hard time even being able to prescribe it. So can you tell us a little bit more about the dialogue around MAT now and, you know, the laws, have the laws changed and, you know, programs that are sort of including MAT?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there's been a, there's been a, a, a large movement, mm. um, you know, uh, with, with physician groups to what we call X the X waiver mm. and, and get rid of the X waiver right. um, as, a, as a way to instantly open up access to, to buprenorphine and, and make eligible every physician in the country to just start prescribing right, things, right? right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, and and while that is, you know, I think necessary, I don't think it's sufficient to, mm-hmm. to solve the problem. And I think that, yes, that is a part of the stigma. That, that, mm-hmm. That's a part of it that causes the stigma that we see today yeah. mm-hmm. by separating that out completely from everything else. Um, but what we know is that the majority of physicians that are wavered are not prescribing. Mm. So... When you start to think about what are the policy solutions that we really need to to you know to, to solve,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, really what is it going to take to have get physicians to prescribe buprenorphine is really the question that I think we need to solve over how do we get more to get waivered.
3: Mm-hmm. Unfortunately,
2: the way that it is right now is that uh, or before really I guess a month and a half ago, <laughs> you needed to be waived um, in order to prescribe any amount of
3: buprenorphine.
2: Um, the Biden administration uh, recently. You know, adjusted that regulation, and now yeah. uh, you don't necessarily need to get a full X waiver to oh. uh, prescribe up to th- uh, thirty patients and, <laughs> and, and, deal, and and work with thirty patients at a time, uh, and and that that is going to be helpful for those areas that uh, you know don't that have only really a primary care physician there, or, you know, FQHCs that don't have specialty addiction uh, clinics around that area. However, what it, it, what it still takes is a, a physician going out and, and assigning the, one of these notice of intents that they, they want to be able to prescribe your mm-hmm. and then actually prescribing
3: it. Mm-hmm.
2: So I, I think it, it's, it's a number of things. You need a behavior change
3: right, also. Right. You, need, mm-hmm.
2: you need, you know, educate. Maybe it's more education in, in medical school on this. You know, right now, most medical education, mm-hmm. you get, you know, one didactic lecture on addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's changing now. We're working on helping to change that right. um, and make it more aware. And I think also it's a generational uh, divide. You know, I think many of the older physicians, um, you know, they got their training a, a long time ago. Those are going to be harder people to and reluctant people to kind of change the way and change their views on
3: mm-hmm.
2: on treating uh, addiction. But mm-hmm. we're really encouraged by the number of Young physicians and, and, and young doctors that really see this as, as a major issue, um, and and really are taking initiative yeah. to be able to treat yeah. patients on this. Yeah. So it's it's complicated. There, yeah. I don't. Again, it's like just like every issue in the opioid crisis. This one's a complicated one mm-hmm. too. Uh, yeah. You know, stigma. Is
3: yeah. How yeah. do you solve
2: right? 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 right. Yeah. You have to. It's. It's. We keep saying over and over again that addiction is not. Uh, you know, a moral failing, you know, that it's a a disease, you know, and, but we can say it over and over again, but what is going to lead to behavioral change of people to overcome that stigma? That's, that's really the question. And that's really difficult to do.
3: Yeah.
2: So hopefully, you know, we opened up an innovation RFP, and one of those areas is around professional education and training. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and we're hoping to see some, you know, really interesting outside the box ideas of of how do we kind of you know drive the stigma out of how do you drive the stigma out? Trends.
3: Yeah, yeah. Right? so you see yeah. the
2: person and not necessarily where they are in their circumstance right. at
1: that moment. right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think also part of what makes that increase even more difficult, right? It's not going to be kind of like oh we do this for a couple of weeks and then it's like going to be great everywhere right it's literally like what you were saying with the doctors like there's like a generational shift right so how long is it really going to take for the for the stigma and these like negative viewpoints to,
2: yeah. to really go away yeah.
3: yeah yeah
2: and and i think we've, we've you know it's like i said you know if you can argue and say that you know this opioid crisis you know started in the 70s and 80s yeah and and while you know there's don't want to I don't want to make it seem like there hasn't been any improvements I think that we've come a, f- a long way
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, since then in, in the way that we can recognize treat the way we handle it um, probably a little, took a little longer than we all hoped for to get to this point right, but right. we have to make sure that we're move, keep moving in the right direction and that we this positive you know momentum that we have going can keep going because every single day you know over 200 people are dying from a, a drug yeah, overdose.
3: Right, yeah. right, right.
0: Gosh, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe if you guys can bring in psychologists, you know, to, to help educate us on how to you know, deal with the stigma, right. That would be, that would be an interesting grant. Right. Yeah. To, to support.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's, I think public awareness is, is, I think the public awareness of this is, is the most important thing. Cause mm-hmm. I think we see with any, any topic. Mm-hmm. It's when you have a shift in public opinion. That's when you can change policy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, right now we still are dealing with a lot of that stigma in the court of public opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but you know, hopefully, we'll start to see a sea shift. Yeah. Wow.
0: Perfect. So my final question for you is actually, you know, hitting on that as well. <laughs> public public opinion. So. So one thing I was when I was thinking about, you know, the topic we we're going to talk about today, like our show is called For Our Love of Science, right? But I feel like this episode, certainly this topic is sort of touching on sort of the darker nature of science, right? And why maybe some people don't love science or have, you know, some sort of feelings against scientists and what have you, mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. the scientific discoveries can be harmful, right? And especially... You know, when it's in a situation where it's misused, it can be harmful. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's probably part of the reason why some in the general public have this distrust towards science and scientists and doctors Mm -hmm. and what have you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so is this something that has come up in discussion and conversations at four? Have you seen any, any grants that are coming in or people are trying to sort of shift the the public, you know, opinion of science and scientists, because we have to sort of get that shift where it's like more trusting and less distrusting, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think sometimes the distrust is what keeps people away. Mm -hmm. So is there Mm -hmm. any, you know, is there any, is this something that you guys are thinking about, talking about, are there any future plans?
2: So, you know, I I think that, you know, I I think in this field, it's interesting because Mm -hmm. I think science there's still so much we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been a, an area that has been traditionally underfunded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think that a, a lot of addiction, a lot of the stuff we know about addiction right now um, is based on the literature we know around alcohol, right. around mm-hmm. cigarettes, right, right. Um, you know, and, and while a lot of money has, has, has gone into it since, you know, the, the early 2000s, you mm-hmm. know, in, in terms of funding for, for opioid addiction, you know, a lot of that money is really thinking about treatment mm-hmm. from a medical perspective.
3: Mm-hmm. Again, you know, thinking
2: of maybe a, a pill is a way to solve another pill. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just mm-hmm. it's kind of from that perspective. Um, you know, and, and and in the areas that um, you know, that we also need prevention and and recovery, there's not much uh research out there, funded mm-hmm. research out there and knowing what we don't know and what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, I think that this field is, is a little bit different because uh, I think that you traditionally for a long time, it's been the advocates, it's been the grassroots organizations, the mm-hmm. communities that have been really leading the charge for, for a long time. You know? mm-hmm. And so, honestly, when you look at the scheme of you know, other issues, science was late, pretty late to the game for mm-hmm. this one. So mm-hmm. we're trying to, to kind of pick up the slack right now yeah. And, and catch up and mm-hmm. figure out, okay, we, what works in recovery? You know, we have a lot of evidence. You know, I think these grassroots organizations, these mm-hmm. community organizations, they've done an incredible job, you know, in, in this time of really with very little resources because they haven't had the help from the government, mm. um, you know, to figure out what's what has helped people in their community, what hasn't,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, and I think now so- it's, it's scientists, you know, we need to to kind of to take that information and, and, and use it and, and figure out you know in, in very scientific <laughs> terms and ways through trials and and quantitative and qualitative studies and, and really figure out you know with all of this collected data what can work so
3: yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I think that there is there can be tension now that it's like again, look we're new to the, our foundations new, but I think again with science being new
3: mm-hmm.
2: in this space um, there can be every once in a while a tension between the science, and advocates mm-hmm. the, the ivory towers and the communities mm-hmm.
3: the community is saying
2: it's like well that's not and the government being like you know that's not what we need right mm-hmm. now it's mm-hmm. like we need this so mm-hmm. I, I think this that you know i think that's a lot more you know the politics of everything right. it's right. You know, trying to figure out with, with, yeah. with resources but i think it's important for scientists to recognize that um we're still relatively new to this field and we need to be listening
0: yeah, yeah. listening yeah, yeah. Definitely, and build build that trust. Yeah, okay, great. Thank you so much, Ken. This was, I think, a really really important conversation to have, and I learned so much. And you know, I love what Four is doing, and I look forward to hearing more about your the work that your grantees are doing.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So we'll definitely have to have a follow
1: up.
2: Yeah, (laughs) for (laughs) sure.
0: Thank you for listening to part one of this episode please tune in to the next episode of part two to hear more about Ken's journey until next time. Bye everyone.